Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 6th, 2022, the What's Herschel Walker Line About Today edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from New Haven, Connecticut by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, author of an amazing New York Times Magazine story that we will discuss and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Thank you. And by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime with John Dickerson from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. This week on the GabFest, the Supreme Court begins at what promises to be a radical term with huge shifts in American law and legal standards. We'll preview it. Then Herschel Walker allegedly paid for an abortion, but will apparently pay no political price for his brazen hypocrisy. Why is that? Then Emily has written a really interesting piece also about abortion and about the fight over medication abortion and the legal consequences for doctors and other medical professionals as abortion becomes uh, differentially legal in different parts of the country and and how those folks who want to support abortion rights are preparing for what will be a huge legal battle. We will talk about that great story. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, listeners, that we're coming to Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd. We will be live at Georgia Tech's first Center for the Arts at 7 p.m. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Live. There are still tickets. We would love to see you there. Last time we were in Atlanta, we had an amazing show at Georgia Tech. And I can't imagine a better time to be in Atlanta, in Georgia, talking about politics than November 2nd in a couple of weeks, in several weeks. So slate.com slash GabFest live. Please join us. The Supreme Court is back first Monday in October and et cetera et al. So forth, so on. It is back following one of its most tumultuous terms ever. But the conservatives are on a roll, and they sure are not going to stop now. Emily, what longstanding precedents can we look forward to being chucked aside this term? What bits of starry decisis are going to be cast off into the void of the universe over the next nine months? Last year, the right to abortion, the right to limit ability to carry guns outside the home, the right of the government to address climate change, all of those in the garbage bin of recent history. What about this year? Right. So there are four big cases already on the docket with more possibly to come. This week, the Supreme Court heard an argument in a case that's about Alabama's redistricting effort. And Alabama wants the court to utterly um, jettison its jurisprudence on the aspect of the Voting Rights Act that pertains to redistricting and that tries to make sure that certain racial minorities uh, have more ability to elect the candidate of their choice. So in other words, Alabama has 27 percent black residents and only one of seven congressional seats do um, black people really have any prayer of electing the candidate of their choice. And so that's the issue um, in that particular case. And we can talk more about argument in a minute. Then there's an affirmative action case coming up, which absolutely seems primed to end affirmative action at higher um, education institutions in the United States. Then there is a really important case about what's called the independent state legislature theory, um, ISL. I've been hearing people call it for short, although I can't imagine that's really tripping off of anyone's tongue. But basically, this is a question about how we run our elections and whether only legislatures, state legislatures, have the power to say anything about um, the rules for an election, as opposed to historically, we've always had state courts and other state agencies sometimes deputized to play a part. And then there is an important case about LGBT rights, um, which is kind of the next stage of the questions that were left by the case about the baker in Colorado. And this is really about what kind of exceptions there will be to anti-discrimination statutes when people say they have a moral or religious objection to to serving gay couples um, for same-sex weddings and, you know, aspects related to their kids. So, yeah, it's already just this huge docket. And just to lean in on this for a second, uh, there's a six six conservatives. They it takes four to take a case, and but there's a pretty strong his, historical evidence that if 
they're taking these cases, we pretty much know how they're going to be decided, right? I mean, yeah, you don't, if you're for conservatives and you think that you don't have the fifth vote, you might wait. Sometimes the conservatives will kind of try to push, or sometimes I should say liberals too, you'll have a sector of the court, a four justice sector, and they might try to they might not know if they have a fifth vote. So it doesn't always work out this way. But yes, often it does. And, you know, when you look at this docket, there is very little going on in the sense of the usual kinds of big disputes that come to the court. Usually there's a big split among the lower courts that the court has to resolve or some other indication that there's this big problem with constitutional or constitutional law or a federal statutory interpretation. We don't have that in these cases. We're not having some big fight and the court is reaching out and grabbing cases anyway. That's especially true of the um, religious liberty case, the LGBTQ case, in the sense that it wasn't even like ready to go and the court kind of prematurely grabbed it. And then there's another case they haven't taken yet involving Yeshiva University's efforts to um, end all LGBT groups on campus. That one almost made it onto the docket, even though the New York courts haven't ruled yet. And so when you see that kind of aggressive reaching out for cases, that suggests a very muscular activist conservative wing. Can I get your thoughts, Emily, on the... um the larger context in which this uh, happens, because while the justices were off for the summer, they didn't stop having opinions. Um, Elena Kagan in three or so different speeches basically raised the point that you have written about and talked about, which is that a court that that gets too far ahead of the public or or radically uh, holds positions that are radically at odds with the public risks its um, its legitimacy and then sort of Alito said that to even raise that issue crossed a kind of an important line. John Roberts didn't go all the way to saying what Alito did, but he essentially did. They were sort of communicating in these speeches that they gave. And then right before they came back into session, the Gallup poll did polls on the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary and a record low 47% of Americans say they have trust in the judiciary. 58% of Americans say they disapprove of the job the Supreme Court is doing. Gallup said that the the opinions of the Supreme Court are the lowest they've been or the worst they've been in the 50 years they've been polling this question. So that's the kind of public context in which all these new cases will be heard. Justice Kagan is being a realist. She's saying what she sees in front of her nose. And Chief Justice Roberts and Alito are making the argument that it's not um, – It's not legitimate for a Supreme Court justice, although they didn't name her, to question the court's legitimacy based on the public's response to cases. And so their stance, particularly Roberts, is to say, if the public disagrees with the court, that's how it goes. The most important thing is to maintain our power of judicial review and to remind everyone um, that that's the way the American system works, essentially that there is no check from public opinion on us. And what Kagan is saying is not that there's one particular opinion, even Dobbs, that should cause the public to lose faith, but rather when the court veers wildly on several fronts from what the public wants, that that is very dangerous territory. And she obviously has historical examples she can point to. I mean, you look at the Lochner court in the early 20th century, you can make this argument about the Warren court in the 1960s. You can see political backlash. So, you know, to me, she's just calling it like it is, and they're engaging in a kind of wishful thinking about what they um, want, what they hope the public would do, which is to essentially give them a free pass. Isn't this out of the court's hands, though, in a lot of ways? Because the reason the court is so politically charged is not just the decisions that they make and the aggressiveness that you've already outlined in the cases they pick and the way in which they rule in those cases. But when you have a political system that is so where the the position of judges and Supreme Court judges in particular is so energized with making sure that your team has a person on the court, that seems like the, what they do on the court can certainly contribute to that feeling. But in reversing that feeling, that seems like that's almost impossible. To me, John, w- taking that a little bit further is that one of the things I find so perverse about what, what's happened is that the Supreme Court they're not saying there's no solution. They're not saying there's no recompense for the public. The public has an action it can take at their democratic actions. It could 
it could uh, they can vote people out of office elect a Congress that will pass new statutes and amend the Constitution. But the Supreme Court itself is so complicit in the ability, in like the the the, the, the stripping of the public's ability to do that, the stripping of the public's ability, as with this redistricting case, to choose its own representatives, the stripping of the public's ability to amend the Constitution, that this, the court itself has contributed to this political paralysis that actually gives the public no meaningful power to to affect what the court is going to do, even sort of in the long term. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like a kind of mutually non-beneficial cycle where you have a sort of handshake going on between elected representatives who want less democracy and the court kind of aiding and abetting that, and then the court reaching out and grabbing these very hot-button social issues, which it doesn't necessarily need to do, right? Like, I mean, when you think of the, from a legal point of view, the activist move of taking the abortion case last year from Mississippi that was about a 15-week ban and using that to simply eradicate Roe in one fell swoop, that's a very bold judicial move, and they have to own that, although you're totally right about the underlying dynamics of the political appointment process. And they also, the conservatives, happen to be associated with a movement at the moment, um, three of them put on the court by President Trump, associated with a movement where President Trump said out loud, there are Obama judges and there are Trump judges, and of course they're influenced by who put them there, and that's why we want to put judges there. Roberts tried to publicly refute that, but we know who won the that who, who won that argument. And and you see the way in which President Trump, who is both a vector but also represents uh, the um, the views of his supporters, thinks about judges. Um, they are supposed to rule for the, his team. And that was brought into highest relief by Roger Stone, who was captured on film talking about the last election, saying, who cares what the vote is? We have the judges and we're going to say we won. Screw you and, and expect our judges, meaning the Trump appointed judges, to affirm uh, what we say, whether the facts of the case uh, support that or not. That's the energy in the political movement that put three of the people on the court at the moment. So whether those people want to, those three members of the court and the majority want to sign up to that or not is a distinct issue from the fact that it's in their lap because they are there as a result of that political energy, which puts them in this tricky spot. I actually don't think that if you look at Gorsuch, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and uh, Barrett, I'm not less sure about. But I think if you look at Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Roberts, they do not want to be perceived as tools of Trump and tools of a political party. That is not, they have no interest in that. And they will, I, for example, when, if we look at the Trump's suit around these Mar-a-Lago documents, given the chance to disassociate themselves with Trump and like come out for some, some you know, nonpartisan political principle, they are going to do it. I don't think, I think they don't want that. I'm not sure about Alito and Thomas. I think that may be true. I was just trying to say that the aggressiveness that Emily identified in the judiciary judicial sphere has this other aggressiveness in the political sphere, and they're both happening in the same in the same movement, which is a which is sort of compounds the problem they have. Well, Justice Jackson got off to a swinging start. What is the purpose of the three liberal justices at this moment? They are not going to win anything meaningful, but what's their value to, to which, you know, those people who support, support them, what are they, what should they get out of that? Her swinging start was she was extremely forceful at oral argument and particularly strong on the history of the 14th Amendment. So this is what you might call like liberal originalism, right? Okay, we're going to look at the history here. And what it shows is that when when the 14th Amendment passes and you still have Reconstructionist Republicans in Congress, and as Justice Jackson pointed out by reading from the records, they were trying to address racial inequity, right? This is the end of slavery. They were not being colorblind. They were talking about how to help Black people become free by making sure they had equal protection under the law. And so she invoked that history in a really um, clear and strong way. And I think that that's important for that point to come across an oral argument. Now, is it the same as getting to write a majority opinion and shape the law? No, of course not. And it's going to be super frustrating to be the three of them writing, you know, powerful dissents, presumably in the big cases for this term. 
Descents are really important, right? Because they go down in history as this alternate route that the court had before it. And sometimes they come back and become a kind of clarion call of um, moral righteousness, what we should have done all along. And it's also just important, like the whole point, if, if there is a difference between law and politics, part of it has to do with the lengthy legal explanations and being able to see people's reasoning. So all of that is, I think, crucial, but it's not the same as getting to write majority opinions. And, you know, we'll see what the medium to long-term history of the court is in terms of whether it changes. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest of course, if you go to slate.com slash plus, you can become a member. Make sure you get an extra bonus segment. We just taped, actually, I'm talking to you. We just taped an amazing bonus segment that's going to be coming up some point in the future. It was so good. So you want to you want to subscribe now just so you're there when that segment airs in a week or two. Today's segment is also going to be great. We're going to talk about Elon Musk owning Twitter, or probably owning Twitter, and will that be a good thing? So go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. Get bonus segments from us, no ads on any podcasts, and unlimited reading on the Slate site. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I feel like we grew up in an era of politics where there was a a vague sense that there were rules about personal behavior and personal misbehavior. And these rules were kind of stretched by Bill Clinton and uh, various other characters and then incinerated by Donald Trump, whose, whose personal immorality and grotesque character were just became irrelevant in Herschel Walker. We have like something taken even further, something it's, it's, it's beyond the bounds of where I thought even we could go Walker, who is this, football star but who is confused and troubled incoherent as a candidate a history of violence against women a man who appears to have been a non-father to the children he had and now this week comes a very credible report from the daily beast confirmed by others that walker paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion back in 2009 he denies it he continues to claim he's against abortion in all circumstances. And he's running, of course, his extremely conservative candidate in the Georgia Senate race. And what's crazy is that it doesn't appear to matter. Maybe John is going to explain to us why it does matter. But John, let's start quickly with the question of why, after these allegations have come out and they've been, you know, they've, they've sort of been like legoed on top of each other. Uh, why have they, his supporters so quickly coalesced around him? Why has the National Republican movement so quickly coalesced around him and pretended this is not just a, a character failing, uh, you know, it goes against everything they say he stands for, he says he stands for. Because the Senate is so tight. I mean, one, Republicans pick up a net of one seat, which is what would happen if Walker won in Georgia, where the race was close before this, uh, and they control the Senate. And when you control the Senate, you control the Supreme Court. So we've talked about this before, but the the nationalization of politics that has taken place over the last 40 plus years has created increasingly the case where all that a party wants, and this there is a, there are real differences here between the two parties, um, but if it's between having control of the Senate and not having control of the Senate, you just want somebody with a warm hand who will be able to raise it when the time comes to take the oath of office and be on your team because it means you'll have control of the Senate. Um, I think secondarily, there's obviously the the Trump factor, which has 
I think, uncovered um, and also sharpened the personal character issues, I mean, of a candidate were really more of a tool than something that voters felt um, uh, in their bones. So during the Bill Clinton years, there was a huge personal character obsession by conservatives. Uh, you know, William Bennett wrote um, the Book of Virtues. Um, uh, Rush Limbaugh blurbed that book saying personal character is all. The Book of Virtues was um, a bestseller, number one bestseller for a long, long, long time. But then I offer you this poll. In 2011, a poll conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Religion News Service found that 60% of white evangelicals believed a public official who, quote, commits an immoral act in their personal life cannot, quote, behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public and professional life. So that's 60% in 2011. Five years later, in 2016, polled by roughly the same group, uh, after the the release of Donald Trump's Access Hollywood tape, found that only 20%, that's right, dropped from 60 to 20% of evangelicals responding to the exact same question thought private immorality meant someone could not behave ethically in public. So essentially, when your team, when it happens to your team, uh, you excuse it. When it happens to the other team, it's a vi- vital flaw that cannot allow them to be anywhere near power. I, I go back to that, Trump's statement about him shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue. Like, it's literally true. It is true that Donald Trump could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. And if the circumstances were right, lots of people would vote for him. Wouldn't care. And the move that's happening with Herschel Walker is to extend that cloak of support to someone who's not Donald Trump. And I think the original sin here, so to speak, is last summer earlier when uh, Walker declared his candidacy, Trump supported him. The domestic violence allegations against Walker, which are the most disturbing part of his conduct to me, were clear at that point, right? These are from court cases of a decade ago um, or a little later than that. They're from, you know, his ex-wife, from other women in his life. He's accused of pointing a gun at the head of two different women he was involved with and making really terrifying threats, the kind of threats that the police take seriously and should. And, you know, McConnell decided to support him, and so did the Republican apparatus. And that's where I think you see the moment where they could have tried to push back, right? I mean, once he wins the primary at this point, the fact that he's now accused of this hypocrisy in terms of paying for an abortion is almost just like, icing on the cake. And you can imagine it consolidating his support, because given those incredibly telling poll numbers you just cited, John, it's like any attack on him is something that the true believer supporters have to say doesn't matter. I actually am looking at this in the context of the Roy Moore case. Roy Moore lost that Alabama Senate race to Doug Jones. And that was an example where enough Republicans did kind of just say this is this is beyond the pale. This person is is a you know he's a pedophile. He's a sexual predator, or there are credible allegations that he is such. And I cannot support somebody who's like this. Here in Walker, we have when you look at the the the, the panoply, the kind of the incredible panorama, the cyclorama to give an Atlanta reference, the cyclorama of allegations against him. I mean, it's extraordinary what he is accused of from the domestic violence to the neglect of children to the absentee parenting to the pain for the abortion to the threats to the kind of clear incoherence and 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 nonsensical things that he says uh and yet the that same abandonment hasn't happened and it's it's curious to me that that there hasn't been more of a defection john do you think there do you think this I mean, it's a close race. Do you think this costs him enough votes that it makes a difference or might? If it's a super close race and this, I think the, where the damage may come may not be in the abortion thing in particular, but that um, it's a, uh, it, it raises, it keeps the conversation focused on this series of issues. And those series of issues will knock people off for various different reasons or keep them from just turning out, you know, that just like, well, you know, am I really going to sp- spend time on this day to go vote or am I going to take the effort to vote when the candidate has got all these all these these issues so I mean I think it won't mean nothing but the 
But the rallying is indelible and forever. Um, and that's a that's a problem. And Republicans, I think, rightly, uh, although I think it's a it has limited utility, but I think it's right. They rightly say, well, you know, Democrats for a long time supported Ted Kennedy, raised him to an icon of the party. And Ted Kennedy, you know, was at the wheel when um, he flipped his car in Chappaquiddick and and killed a young woman, Mary Jo Kopechny. Um, and that didn't really hurt him in Democratic politics, um, other than probably, you know, hurting his presidential ambitions. But I think, A, times are very different. The modern Democratic Party pushed Al Franken out um, without uh, g- going through a, a, you know, due process to... Um, so I think the modern Democratic Party is different than than um, 1970 Democratic Party. Well, Bill Clinton also credibly accused of rape. Right. And yeah, I mean, that was not known for most of the time he was president, but there were pretty credible accusations. An excellent point. And, and that but but your point is also right, which is the time. Now, you could also say, well, that's because people didn't really push, you know, people who cared about the treatment of women by men in positions of power didn't necessarily push for full disclosure and examination of Bill Clinton because he was behaving in their interests. That is, though, a story from the 90s. And the treatment of figures like Elliot Spitzer and Schneiderman in New York suggests that, you know, and and Franken is an example, too, that the Democrats have tried to have some kind of higher standard. Although, you know, I think it's really hard to be entirely consistent about these things. So I don't want to give them that. But there is a sense of movement. I mean, I, I definitely thought Bill Clinton should resign back in 98, 99. I mean, I, and I think Ted Kennedy, you know, was a disgrace. I think it is, I I, I mean, I feel like I've been personally pretty consistent about this. I think it's a genuine tragedy for the country that this kind of personal rectitude and personal morality is no longer valued by, certainly no longer particularly valued by the Republican Party. And it's valued by the Democratic Party to to some extent. It, the country would be much better off if we had more people like Mitt Romney in office. Like it would be just a much better, even if their politics are not what I agree with, it would just be a much better country. Not because, and I think it's because when you get bad people running for office, their instability, their stupidity, their callousness just degrades American political life and makes reasonable people shun it. And it just drives reasonable people and the kind of everyday honorable people who you want serving in office away from politics. And that just makes the country worse. Like wh- whether it's driving out Democrats who are like that or Republicans are like it, it is just worse to have assholes be the dominant force in American political life. And and Herschel Walker and Donald Trump like are e- exemplars of this 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 kind of who could possibly say that it's better to have a Herschel Walker than Raphael Warnack, who is a is a man of like enormous integrity and and rectitude and 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 honor and kindness and generosity and and self abnegation. Like who could how can you possibly think that's a better world? And yet, well, if you just need a warm hand to, you know, a warm body to raise their hand and vote, then you don't care about any of those things. And I think your point about breeding cynicism is very well taken. I mean, I do want to put in a word for due process here, not relevant to Herschel Walker, because I think the evidence against him is extensive and was admitted into court. I do worry about people being dinged on bare allegations without enough, you know, investigation and vetting. And I think that that did happen in Al Franken's case. Not that he was necessarily not, didn't do the things he was accused of, just that, like, he didn't get it procedure from the Senate, partly because he chose to resign, but partly because there was pressure on him to resign. At the same time, we're not talking about, you know, people being punished in any formal way, we're talking about whether to elevate them to very high positions or whether to keep them in very high positions. And in that context, it's okay to have to err on the side of, you know, wanting people to be highly moral who hold these offices. And so I do feel like I have these kind of competing feelings um, about due process, but also a sense of like, hey, wait a second, nobody's sending these people to jail. We're just talking about whether they should be our highest elected officials. 
big weekend here in America because there's a new Emily Bazelon opus. Emily has a really remarkable story in the New York Times Magazine. It's just a fascinating story about the legal questions facing uh, Americans and non-Americans who want to provide abortion services to people who live in states where abortion is now illegal. And the issues around medication abortion, around telemedicine, around uh, uh, traveling across state lines, around extradition of people criminally charged in, in, in one state. And it, it's just a fascinating story, Emily. Can you just situate us? Uh, who are you telling the story of and, and, and why did you approach it now? So to set the table for this story, two years ago, about 250,000 people had abortions in states where that is now illegal or severely restricted or about to be. That is way too many people for everyone to be able to travel out of state to get abortions, which is the, you know, most, at this point, clearly legal path for addressing this. So yes, clinics are a mainstay of care, and there will be more clinics on the borders of red states, for example, in Illinois and Colorado and presumably Florida, at least for a while, um, up to 15 weeks. But the role of telemedicine abortion, of prescribing pills via telemedicine and then women receiving them through the mail and taking them at home and taking control of managing their own miscarriages, that just has to loom larger in American life if women are going to continue to have access to abortion. The problem is that it's illegal in the states that have banned abortion to do that. And that means that if an American provider were to prescribe pills across state lines, she or he would be risking a lot of things, prosecutions, lawsuits, loss of their medical license. Just to be clear. So when you're saying that it is illegal, I live in, I'm a woman who lives in Texas and I'm pregnant and I want an abortion and I approach a provider who lives in another state and ask them to prescribe me the abort abortion pills, that provider has now exposed themselves to criminal liability in Texas. Yes, yes. But in Texas, not in New York or Massachusetts, where they're located. And so I was am really interested in a small group of American doctors and midwives who want to figure out how to write these prescriptions, even though it is illegal in certain states. And they want as much of a legal shield as they can get from their home states. It's not a complete legal shield. And it also is very disruptive to the way interstate relations work in the United States to imagine Texas charging someone with a felony in Massachusetts and Massachusetts saying, sorry, we're not going to extradite this person. Because they normally would. They absolutely normally would. That is how criminal prosecution works in the United States, right? Massachusetts doesn't even look very closely. They just say, like, yeah, we're going to help you because we are one country. So, in fact, I'm using Massachusetts as an example because it is the only state that has so far passed a shield law for abortion and for gender-affirming care that protects providers from Massachusetts cooperating with a state like Texas, as long as uh, the provider is following the laws of Massachusetts. And the key language in Massachusetts is it's doing this regardless of the patient's location. So other states, blue states that have passed shield laws have said the patient has to travel to that state, to New York, to Connecticut. That's not as... um, feasible for a lot of people who are in red states, especially people with low incomes, especially Black and Latino and Indigenous people who are seeking abortions and who are in need of the kind of being able to do this at home with some backup care and support. And so this group I was writing about is called Aid Access, is trying to figure out how to thread this needle. They do, at the moment, provide um, telemedicine abortions in red states, but they rely on the Austrian medical license of a doctor in the Netherlands, Rebecca Gompertz, who started Aid Access in 2018 when she started getting more appeals from women in red states, even before Dobbs. And now the question is how to expand the services in the U.S. through U.S. providers and how to cut down the delivery time. Because when Rebecca Gombertz prescribes these pills, they're delivered through a distributor in India, and they can take a few weeks to arrive. So ideally, you would have, from an abortion care standpoint, and we should talk about abortion opponents in a minute, but 
if you're talking about access, you want U.S. providers to be able to do this as well, and you want a U.S.-based pharmacy that can cut down on delivery times. But all of those things are just very legally tricky, and not just from the point of view of a threat of prosecution, also from a point of view of lawsuits. And some listeners, I'm sure, are thinking about Texas and how successful the anti-abortion folks were there in shutting down um, clinics and ending abortions after six weeks just by threatening lawsuits. And so that's an important part of the picture here. Why is it important that this be American providers? It seems like if you could find a bunch of providers in Europe to just do this, that they they would be fine as long as they made sure never to travel to Texas. And So part of the answer is this problem of delivery time and wanting to be able to deliver the pills in a few days. You know, waiting two or three weeks for an abortion is hard for people. And depending where you are, you could... Um, move beyond the first trimester, which is when aid access um, offers prescriptions. And I think there's just also this sense of like, this is an American problem and these U.S. providers want to help solve it. They know that medication abortion delivered through telemedicine is very safe and effective. We have like really a mountain of evidence at this point. And so it's this kind of deep frustration, this feeling like they want to be able to step in. Why does it need even... uh the the medicine part of it why can't it just be the tele why can't you just go on the web and order these pills and have them sent to you from india yourself do do you actually need a prescription to do it i assume there are pharmacies in india mexico whatever that will send you these pills. yes you can just go online and google and order and the fda warns against doing that they think that you're bypassing important safety precautions, right? You're just like ordering drugs um, from another country. You don't know exactly what you're getting. I will say that there have been studies. People have ordered these pills and tested them to see what you actually receive. Um, A research group called Gynuity did this. Farhad Manju did this at the New York Times. And actually, they almost always come with the the proper ingredients. These are really inexpensive drugs. And so there isn't a lot of reason for the distributors in foreign countries not to send what people order. However, you know, having a miscarriage at home, it can be a small deal or it can be a big deal. And having some medical screening to make sure that you're not one of the very small number of people, for example, with some kind of blood disorder that would make you ineligible, to make sure that you dated your pregnancy properly, and having someone who you have a sense has your back, that has some value. I should also say that some of the same doctors who are working with Aid Access also started a hotline called the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline that anyone can call with a question about self-managing a miscarriage or an abortion. And that's free. And it's separate from ordering these pills. So that exists um, no matter what. And I think part of the challenge right now is um, – making sure people understand that these options are available. And they're, so one of the things that abortion opponents are doing um, is to propose a model state bill that would make it a crime to spread information about this kind of access to abortion. And, you know, that seems like it should be an obvious First Amendment violation, but the providers I was talking to are quite worried about the chilling effect those kinds of proposals have. And you'd also want some kind of medical care or telecare for the psychological aspects of this as well. Yes, absolutely. And you want, I think, in the ideal world of the providers I was focusing on, you want women and people generally to be able to transmit this knowledge to each other, right? You want people to understand how these pills work, the the hard parts of them to have other people who are, you know, assisting in a kind of like abortion doula role, just a sense of like wisdom that's out there. Um, one of the things that Aid Access offers is buying the pills in advance and stocking them in your medicine cabinet. So you have them. Um, and you know, this is like a different vision of making abortion part of mainstream healthcare, part of something that um, people are passing along to each other. Obviously, that is anathema to people who oppose abortion, right? It's a huge threat to restricting or ending the procedure. And so before Dobbs, you had 19 states that made telemedicine abortion effectively illegal. And when I was talking to abortion opponents, um, you know, lawyers who are thinking about future legislation, 
they care a great deal about preventing this, and their preferred tactic is civil enforcement, like the kinds of lawsuits in Texas. Their hope is that you just threaten the lawsuits and you don't actually have to put doctors in jail because people losing their medical licenses is a big disincentive. And so there's a way in which um, this problem of risk is being used against the doctors. Um, and there are a small number of them who are ve- very willing to challenge it. But it's going to be a super interesting political question about whether some of the Republican-led states, um, you know, really do try to go after these providers. So, so, so far, there has been no criminal charges brought against a doctor providing abortion in Massachusetts to somebody in, in Oklahoma. Nothing like that so far. Or even a civil lawsuit, anything. But you sort of, I mean, I, yeah, it seems like it is looming and it raises questions about the kind of fabric of what holds the states together when you have state laws conflicting like this. Emily Bazelon's story is risking everything to offer abortions across state lines. It's in the New York Times Magazine. Read it. It's a really, really good story. And I'd say this even by the high standards of Emily Bazelon. This is a like a, Thank you. a primo Bazelon story. <laughs> Who knew there was such a thing? Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are envisioning a world of free transit of alcohol across state lines. What are you going to be chattering about, John? Uh, my chatter this week is about my nightmare, but Damian Brown's dream. Um, so for me, the nightmare would be you're on the open ocean, no land in sight for many, nightmare. many, many days. Nightmare. Many days in a boat that can be moved only by the power of your own steam, which is to say no sails, no nothing. So Damien Brown is a former um, Irish uh, rugby uh, player, um, and he rode for 112 days from New York to his hometown of Galway. Um, And just under he rode like that's all he had. Um, he started out with a with a, a mate, a Fergus Farrell, but um, and they'd been swapping shifts in twenty four hour, uh, you know, going basically twenty four hours a day, only sleeping for short periods of time, and just row, row, rowing their boat. Um, but then Farrell had to bail because he got tightness in his chest, so um, Brown had to had to complete the journey. Um, he had sixty five days worth of freeze dried food and rations. You might note that that's half the number of days it took him. Um, and that he made those rations into edible food by heating uh, uh, boiling filtered ocean water powered by solar panels, which is very cool. Um, but according to what I read in the Irish Times, Brown can't swim. So that seems to me to be even more tricky, but it was hard to compute because he did. He has an Instagram page and a podcast that he did throughout all of this. And in the Instagram page, he's in the water picking off the barnacles from underneath his rowboat um so if he can't swim i don't know i guess maybe he had some kind of flotation device but check it out on instagram it's um old sock spelled a-u-l-d-s-t-o-c-k that's old stock it might have sounded like i said sock at first but i didn't um anyway it's just nuts he made it safely he's got a fantastic accent i will not be doing this emily what's your chatter My favorite thing this week was this story about these um, fishermen, fisher people, but really this is a very male story, who put leaded weights into the fish they caught (laughs) so they could win a competition. And there's just this, like, fabulous video of them getting caught. And what is just so awesome about the story was just how... Uh, far they went. So uh, apparently they started earlier in the summer. They were just like putting small amounts of weight into the fish. And then they made these fish so heavy that a fish that seemed like it would be 20 pounds was 33 pounds. And then, you know, someone opened up the fish and like out fell all these lead pellets or extra fish fillets. I just love the like macho, you know, competitive streak that leads you to cheat to such an extent that, of course, you are going to get caught. Yeah. I mean, it's like they almost put an anvil in there. Um, exactly. It was very funny. Anyway. Well, I mean, everyone's cheating everywhere. There's this, this the chess cheating, poker cheating, fishing cheating. People cheat. Like, that's the thing. You, you, People are dishonorable. We're terrible. When, they're, when there's money and, and prestige at stake, people cheat. 
just unfortunate. My chatter, also my favorite thing of the week, is from The New Yorker, an article by Adam Dalva called Letters to Jeb Bush. And it's a by a, a writer who, as Jeb Bush was was running for president, trying to win the Republican nomination and, and failing miserably, Adam Dalva started sending him emails. Jeb Bush had put his public email out and invited people to contact him. And Adam Dalva was just having a really bad year. His, he was failing professionally. His life was a mess. He was feeling really low. He didn't know how to kind of make it in the world. And he just started sending these emails about his his failures as a writer and asking for advice, uh, professional advice to Jeb Bush. And I, I don't want to give too much away, um, but it's just such a human story. And it's it's really beautiful. It's just and it's about these two men who are failing at the same time, because, of course, Jeb Bush's campaign, presidential campaign is failing in miserably at the moment that Adam Dalva is writing him about his own personal failures. And uh, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And, and we do get to meet Jeb Bush in it. And actually Jeb Bush comes across in this kind of interesting way, which is very humanely, but also narrowly, like he's a narrow, Jeb Bush turns out to be a narrow person, although a humane person. And it's, uh, it's, it's great. Just definitely read the story. It's, it brought me so much pleasure. Listeners, you also had sent us a ton of great chatters this week. A ton, a ton. We had to, we're stockpiling some of them. Please keep them coming. Uh, you can email them to us at gabfest.slate.com or tweet them to us at, at slategabfest. And this week's listener chatter comes from somebody with a magnificent name too, Jamaica Pope Joy. Hi, my chatter is in response to David's chatter last week about Michael Sheen, who I agree is amazing. If you haven't seen it yet, you should check out Staged with Sheen and David Tennant. It's a web series they did during the pandemic where they play themselves. The premise is the play they were set to start rehearsals for gets delayed when a lockdowns hit and they get talked into doing re rehearsals via Zoom. Now, the amount of actual rehearsing is like two seconds, and the majority of the show is about these two actors slowly going mad and being absolutely hilarious. It is the best two seasons you will ever watch, and if you didn't love these actors before, you will after you watch. Sounds great. I'm going to watch that. I'm now a Michael Sheen stan. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest, where you should tweet chatter to us. And come to our live show in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd. Go to slate.com slash gabfestlive to get tickets. Please join us there. For Emily Baslon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We're back to Elon Musk. Elon Musk. The gift that keeps giving or the devil that keeps destroying. I'm always really interested in Elon Musk. I know he's a there's lots to be repelled by, but I always find him fascinating. So he's now offering, apparently, to go through with his purchase of Twitter. Maybe. I'm going to put asterisks next to it. He proposed to buy it months ago for $44 billion, backed out when... Uh, the market turned and and made an, a, just a series of ludicrous ac accusations about Twitter that uh, they had lied about the number of users. Not maybe the accusations aren't ludicrous, but he, but one thing that Musk had done when he had offered to buy Twitter is he'd waived all due diligence. He said, "I'd buy it. I don't care what's going on. I'll buy it." And now he's he tried to weasel out of the deal by claiming there was material representation misrepresentations by Twitter about their number of users. Anyway, the, it, Twitter sued him and said, you have to buy us. You said you were going to buy us for $44 billion. And they were about to go to Chancery Court in Delaware, where it really looks like tw Musk would lose. Looks like Musk would lose badly. And also, he would have to sit through a deposition. Um, and as this deadline approached, it, Musk made various offers to try to buy Twitter at a lower price and now seems to have just been... Twitter refused and now seems to uh, 
be facing the fact that he may have to buy it for the $44 billion he proposed to buy it for months ago. And so we are, have the prospect of Elon Musk owning Twitter again. We've talked about this before. John, as Twitter's first user, how do you feel about this? Well, I, before I get to that, we got to, I think, fill in a few more of the sections of the coloring book. One is that um, in the process of discovery, a lot of Elon Musk's texts to his friends were coming out in which no one looked very good. Um, so not only would he have to sit and say a bunch of stuff under oath or for, I guess, penalty of perjury, maybe not under oath. Emily, fix me on that one. Um but okay, but you know, which is a lot different than uh, having a strong meme game. Um, you know, you have to like say stuff that that might get you in serious uh, trouble. So that's the one, the one thing. And one of the things that's always interested me about this whole debate is that we are in this world of make up the situation, uh, whatever you want of it, as long as you have the votes, the violent muscle, or the money. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member today hi this is dahlia lithwick host of slate's legal podcast amicus if you're listening to this show you might be interested in amicus's live show that we're hosting in washington dc on tuesday may the 14th my colleague mark joseph stern and i will be talking to some amazing guests including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 